When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 128 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today, I can't quite believe, is the incredible, inspirational, game-changing genius of stage and screen, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Best known as the creator and star of the hip-hop musical Hamilton, which may well be the biggest Broadway phenomenon in history, the 36-year-old has won a Pulitzer Prize and a MacArthur Genius Grant for his work, plus an Emmy, two Grammys, and three Tonys. And in just a few weeks, he might well become the youngest ever EGOT if he wins the Best Original Song Oscar for which he has been nominated for the tune How Far I'll Go, which he wrote for the 2016 Disney animated movie Moana. In short, it appears there's nothing Miranda can't do. And over the course of our conversation at Line 204 Studios in Hollywood, the room where it happened was a hilariously large soundstage there, it was my goal to try to figure out the roots and secrets of his magic. Among the many topics we discussed, how he fell in love with music and theater in the first place, what occurred during his undergraduate days at Wesleyan and in the years immediately thereafter that led to his first Broadway show, In the Heights, which ran from 2008 through 2011 and won the Best Musical Tony, how he first came up with the idea of building his next show around America's founding fathers and why it seemed obvious to him that colorblind casting and rap would bring out added layers of their story, how he handled the massive success of Hamilton's off-Broadway production at the Public Theater in early 2015 and then at the Richard Rogers Theater on Broadway starting later that year, all of which hit right after his wife had given birth to his first child and he had committed to write the music for Moana, what remains on the bucket list of a guy who already has accomplished way more than most people even dare to dream of doing, and so much more. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lynn, thank you so much for doing this. It's such a treat to have you on the podcast. And... We always begin by asking, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born at Roosevelt Hospital in Manhattan, New York, and I was raised in Upper Manhattan, and my mom is a psychologist, and my dad is a community activist turned political consultant. Yes. And so where does the love of and gift for music and theater come from? Is that something you can trace? You know, I think my parents were of the generation where cast albums were just there side by side with the rest of your music. They tell the story that when they started dating, my dad looked at my mom's record collection and saw Man of La Mancha and My Fair Lady, and he was like, okay, we're going to be fine. (laughs) So they both grew up loving Broadway scores as well as, you know, Latin music and Dionne Warwick and and all the other stuff that was in that collection. So I grew up with with all of that playing in the house. And throughout 
school, I, I gather you were involved with musical theater, and I'm wondering just how that evolved. I've read about a Ms. Ames, a rapping bus driver, Mm -hmm. a collaborator who later became MSNBC's Chris Hayes, (laughs) (laughs) and a theater group called Brick Prison. This is all before you graduate from high school, so maybe if you could just help connect the dots a little bit. Sure, I'll I'll take you through all of those (laughs) chapters uh, because they're all pivotal. Well, one, it begins with, as always, with a teacher. We had an amazing elementary school music teacher named Miss Ames. And Miss Ames, when she got there, started the tradition of the sixth grade play. When you're in sixth grade, you learn about electricity, you learn a little bit about world history. But the most important thing you do is you put on the sixth grade play and you put it on for the rest of the elementary school. So I remember seeing the sixth grade play when I was a kid in kindergarten. It was West Side Story. In first grade, it was Fiddler on the Roof. In second grade, it was Peter Pan. In third grade, it was Wizard of Oz slash The Wiz. She kind of took the song she liked best from both. Fourth grade, it was Oklahoma. Fifth grade, it was Bye Bye Birdie. And by the time I was in sixth grade, I was in a frenzy as to what our sixth grade right. play would be. So it's a, it's, it's a, a lifetime of looking forward to getting to put on a show right. by the time I'm 12. And what we did was a mix of the previous six years' worth of shows. So you so must have I, been in your element. Lethal yeah. dosage of musical <laughs> theater. I got to be Conrad Birdie, Captain Hook, an Adipearl backup in The Wiz, a son, a cowhand in Oklahoma, and Bernardo in West Side Story. So that was that was elementary school to me. I, I, I don't remember European history. I don't remember <laughs> making a lamp for the electricity segment, but I remember playing all those roles. And then... I I went to, again, I I lived really far uptown. I went to school on the Upper East Side. So there was a a bus company that took us to school, and my bus driver, his name was Billy Baker Jr. It's Baker Transportation. They're still around. (laughs) God bless them. They're the greatest. And he would rap all the time, and he would teach us rap songs to and from school. So what's he rapping about? So he taught us Ghetto Boys' mind playing tricks on me. He taught us Rapper's Delight. I mean, it was all old school, yeah, old yeah, school hip hop. Yeah. It wasn't the same, because his whole thing was like, nah, I was better before. <laughs> so he would teach us, you know, Beef by Boogie Down Productions. He would teach us sort of lots of old school stuff. Right. Well, we were all trying to rap to Criss Cross right. and Naughty by Nature, right. and he was teaching us the old stuff, and, and that was like a, that was, Two hours of my day every day. I had a long commute to school. So, yeah, thank you, Billy Baker Jr. <laughs> and then in high school, we had a student-written theater group called Brick Prison. Called Brick Prison because our school is a converted armory, so there are no windows in the school. <laughs> and so that's sort of an affectionate nickname for the school itself. But it's all student-directed, student-written. And so I started writing plays because I knew I could get produced. And if your play got picked... Another student would direct your show, and you were a writer all of a sudden. Right. And so I started writing plays for that ninth grade. I didn't get an eighth grade, actually. I didn't get one in until 10th grade. And then I wrote my first two musicals were 20-minute musicals for Brick Prison. And the first musical I ever wrote was called Nightmare in D Major, and it was directed by MSNBC's Chris Hayes. <laughs> he and I used to ride the bus together. He knows right. Billy Baker Jr. <laughs> I don't know if he was on the same route as me. So I, I don't... can't see Chris rapping, though. Yeah. I don't know. But I, I... So another thing I heard that happened in high school, how did you meet Stephen Sondheim? That was a stroke of of enormous good luck. John Weidman, who is one of Sondheim's great collaborators, his daughter is two years younger than me at Hunter. So he came and spoke to us. And then when he found out we were doing West Side Story, he brought Steve to speak to our cast. And I was directing West Side Story my senior year in high school. And it was my first glimpse of musicals not being these amazing tablets handed down from on high, but things that were messy. He told us a story about writing lyrics to the prologue of West Side Story and then throwing them all out because Jerry Robbins said, I'm going to dance them. You know, it was my first glimpse of the process of making musicals. I think that that was very instructive for me and sort of pointed the direction I wanted to go in. So when you then went off to Wesleyan, what did you imagine your future would hold? Did you think this could be a career or did you have to cover your ass with other things? It's interesting. I only applied to colleges that let you double major in theater and film because I was really equally passionate about both. I, I made a ton of movies in high school as well. You know, it's it, the sort of cast your friends, have a sleepover, film all weekend type movies. And it came down to practicality in terms of choosing my major. You know, if you are a film major, you're paying for your own senior film. 
the best you can hope for is getting, you know, being the one that gets in a festival after you graduate and you're among millions of people who have all put poured their money into their senior film. We didn't have money like that. My my parents' money was being used entirely to pay for tuition. (laughs) Or you could, you know, if you did theater, which I was doing every year, I found myself either acting in someone else's show or writing my own shows, the school pays for it. Mm -hmm. It's part of the budget of the school. And so I, I think I became a theater major because I just found I was spending all my time doing that. Were you still taking film stuff? I know Janine Basinger over there is pretty good. Yeah, Janine Basinger is the greatest. <laughs> yeah. And her track record in terms of the, the film alumni coming Amazing. out of there, that Wesleyan Film Mafia is so real. And so, yeah, so I took I took all my prerequisites. I took yeah. History of World Cinema. I took Anthrofilm. I took Westerns with Slotnick, which is a legendary <laughs> class. I actually chose Wesleyan because I snuck into Janine Basinger's Hitchcock class oh my gosh, when I was wow. a prefrosh and visiting. You were sold. And, and I will never forget it. She looked around, looked at me, and said, I know some of you aren't supposed to be here. <laughs> this is a seniors, majors only class, but this is such a rare print of Otto Preminger's Bunny Lake is Missing <laughs> that if you have the opportunity to see it, you should. So I'm not right. kicking anyone out of this class. Right. And I remember the class was scheduled for three hours and went six hours because the conversation, and I was like, well, I'm going here. Yes. Oh, man. So is it correct that when you were a freshman there, that's when you first began working on what over the next few years would become in the heights and also who was professor bill francisco oh fantastic (laughs) questions it was actually my sophomore year i'd started writing these songs i didn't know what they were yet but they were between a guy named benny and a guy named lincoln who ended up not making the final cut into the show lincoln's little sister nina ended up being the star of the show Uh, but she didn't exist yet and i had a friend slash mentor who was a senior at the time named matthew graham smith he's still directing theater he's a great director and he said these are really good if you finish this i'd love to direct it i've never told this this part of the story before (laughs) and so you know encouragement from someone who was really good at making theater sort of lit a fire under me i wrote the whole thing over a frenzied winter break, wrote sort of an 80-minute one-act, and then he was too busy finishing his senior thesis to actually direct it. And I was like, well, I'm super pregnant with this thing now, (laughs) so I've got to do it. So I ended up directing it myself. I wasn't in the original version, and it was 80 minutes, one-act. We put it up at the end of April in the legendary 92 theater at Wesleyan, named because it was a gift of the class of 1892. (laughs) And it was one of the... The virtues, this is, this is one of the virtues of diversity in casting. I wrote a Latino show that took place in a Latino neighborhood. There's not a ton of Latinos that go to Wesleyan. <laughs> so by virtue of its existence, my show had kids who didn't ordinarily do theater. And as a result, everyone at Wesleyan had a friend in the show oh, wow. because it was football kids. It was kids from Ebony Singers coming to see Ralphie in the show. It was, you know, the friends from that Latino frat coming right. to see David Ortiz in the show. And so... So diversity led to big box office yeah, at the you, Wesleyan 92 Theater yeah, yeah. because we pulled from a wider source than the same 12 kids who do all the shows. Right. And so I put that up my sophomore year and Bill Francisco was a legendary professor at Wesleyan and really enjoyed it. And, and basically there's no musical theater major at Wesleyan. It's pretty hardcore classics and some really great like avant-garde and Bogart viewpoint stuff. But he basically was like, we should just do a private musical theater tutorial. And so I did a tutorial with him junior year. And then he was my thesis advisor. I was his last last year teaching. Wow. So, you know, you if you throw a rock in New York, you'll hit someone who had Bill Francisco for a mentor. And so he was helping you to shape In the Heights? No, In the Heights already existed by the time he saw it, but he was helping me to shape what theater could be you know he taught an amazing directing class and one of my favorite assignments for that class was you're going to direct Othello but you're not going to direct any of the scenes you're just going to direct three transitions between three scenes of Othello and that will show me what your production of Othello will look like it forces you to realize that the transitions are the most important part of directing theater it's about fluidity it's mm-hmm. about not trying to change the text when you're directing something but just trying to fulfill the text and you know he, he was really a, a visionary guy he was a very moody guy I was sort of at the end of his career and and learning to navigate his moods probably prepared me for meeting with producers better than anybody right. <laughs> because one day it would be you're brilliant I I don't know what we're gonna do with you and then the next day it would be like this is the most self-indulgent crap in the world and getting up and walking out of the room and I would just kind of be like all right well you're my thesis right, advisor right, so right. it was such a roller coaster but I, I learned so much from him so when you graduated in 2002 you go out in the real world and like 
everyone else, I'm sure you felt some pressure to get a real job, start making money, you know, fend for yourself. And yet, unlike most people who, unfortunately, I guess, kind of lose focus of their passions because they just have to figure out a way to put food on the table, you you figured out a way to do both, right? Yeah. Well, it, it's, again, it, it sounds corny, but it, co- it goes back to going back home. You know, my first job out of college was teaching at my old high school. So let's think about this for a moment. <laughs> my high school went 7 through 12. I spent my entire childhood because my, my school is K through 12, that building. So I went back to the place I was most comfortable in the world, this time as a teacher. Right. There were kids who were seniors who remember me as a student. Oh and God. suddenly I've got a tie on and they have to call me Mr. Miranda. <laughs> what grade were you doing? I was teaching seventh grade English. So my students were, were newbies right, to me. Right. But the seniors were like, this is so <laughs> weird. We remember your cast party. Right. <laughs> you know, But... It was, it was thrilling. I loved the work. I think the thing you learn fast when you're a teacher, and I don't think this is, let me put it this way, I think every performer should teach a little because what you learn is you're doing your best when you're barely doing anything. Mm-hmm. You're learning your best when you're just keeping the ball in the air. The kids are smart. Keep them engaged and keep them talking to each other, and they're going to make connections and insights you could never have imposed on them. And so, and that serves you as an actor. That serves you as a writer. Like, just be quiet and pay attention, and right. they're going to lead the way. All you have to do is keep the ball in the air and keep anyone from hurting each other. And so that was a, an incredible lesson. And so I taught seventh grade English for a year, and then I was basically a professional sub because the hours of teaching full-time were preventing me from getting my writing done. And so subbing is riskier. You're basically counting on someone to get sick so you can make rent. <laughs> but it was it was really great because the hours were really flexible and allowed me to spend most of my day writing. What I found interesting was that a fellow Wesleyan alum, Thomas Kale, is who you've worked with on all of your shows since college, and yet you guys didn't know each other at Wesleyan? No, he was a senior when I was a freshman, and we learned later that we actually shared a lighting grid. One weekend, I was putting on a 20-minute musical in the basement of the Westco Cafe, and he was putting on an evening of one act at the Fairweather Gym, and my show was first, and then his his lighting guys would come and take my lights away for his show. And he was like, who's this freshman? Why am I sharing lights with a fucking freshman? (laughs) So his first impression of me was just like the punk who was like hogging his lights. But we didn't meet until the week after I graduated college. We were were connected via two close friends of his, John Buffalo Mailer and Neil Stewart, with whom he'd formed Backhouse Productions. They'd seen In the Heights at Wesley, and they were a year younger than him. And so... My only real-world uh, appointment on the books after graduating college was the week after you graduate, you're going to go meet Tommy Kale for the first time. And I met Tommy, and we started talking, and we still haven't stopped all these years later. That's amazing. And and how early on did you guys put together this hip-hop comedy improv program, Freestyle Love Supreme? That came very organically out of workshopping in the Heights. So Tommy did a very smart thing. There's a million theater companies in New York. None of them have space. What Tommy and Neil and John and Anthony Viniziali, who's mm-hmm. the founder of Freestyle of Supreme did was they were introduced to the drama bookshop, which is, you know, a touchstone in New York. It's got all the plays. Every writer, every actor goes through there to get to get monologue sides or, or new plays. And they basically went to the owner and said, hey, we'll convert your basement into a black box theater. And that way you get traffic in here to for people to see shows. And can we call ourselves the resident company of the drama bookshop? And so when I got there, they were still painting the walls black. And all of the early iterations of In the Heights were in that basement. And Anthony was was a founding member of that group, but wasn't involved with in the Heights directly. So he would just come in and we'd shoot the shit and freestyle. And it started as one-upsmanship and turned into like, here's a freestyle version of my day at the piano. And so he basically was like, we should do this in front of an audience. And he sort of, so he pushed me to do it. And it was originally just the two of us in front of, like with pre-programmed beats at the People's Improv Troupe Theater back at the old location on 29th and Nowhere. And (laughs) that sort of started forming like Voltron by itself. You know, Chris Sullivan, who's our beatboxer, saw us at the pit and said, you need me. And we said, oh, my God, we do. (laughs) Chris Jackson was in In the Heights in all those early drafts. And so he became involved. Bill Sherman, who was a music director on on Heights. And and I brought in Arthur, who I went to elementary school with, who was a fellow Adderall backup in that sixth grade play. So it formed very organically. And while that was forming, you guys were starting to 
like how did Tommy become a part of In the Heights with you? And how did that go from the point where this is probably like 2003, 2004, by 2008 you guys are on Broadway. So can, what happened in there that it just came together? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Tommy had, I think the the thing that was so fortunate about our meeting was Tommy and I both had the virtue of time and distance when we first met. So I finished In the Heights my sophomore year. I made a cast album of it to pay off the sound costs. I was like, I could spend this money on microphones or I could spend this money on trying to get a good band or I could spend this money on making a cast album and then I'll sell the cast album and make back the money. So we were the rare college production with a cast album. And so... John and Neil had given him the cast album and the script, which I'd given them. So he'd been listening to In the Heights for two years before we met. And I hadn't touched In the Heights for two years. So he came with 50 ideas at once. And I came with the perspective of, this guy's going to make a better show. This guy's much smarter than me. And his ideas are going to make the show better. If we had met just after I'd finished it, I would have been like, who are you? You know, you're you're protective over right, something after you've just finished making it. But... With a little distance on it. And so so he was involved from the, that first conversation. And then what's what's interesting is Freestyle was sort of took off on its own. He, he became involved in that because we were just sort of doing fun, short-form games using Freestyle Hip Hop. And he sort of found, helped us find a structure for it that made for a satisfying evening. So there's nothing planned in the show. The rhymes are all made up on the spot and they're all based on audience suggestions. <laughs> but we will start by introducing ourselves. We will end by doing the day in someone's life that ends with them coming to the theater. So it, it, it has the structure of a satisfying evening and allows for maximum freedom within that structure. Amazing. In the Heights debuted on Broadway March 2008. You guys won a lot of, well, you in particular won a lot of new admirers, and, and including Tony Voters, Best Musical. Pretty great way to start a Broadway career. Went along the line, though, because this, this ran for almost three yeah, years. Yeah, just shy of three years. So went along the line, did you begin thinking about how do you follow such a great start? And then maybe you can lead that into, into the trip to Borders. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, that's the... It's funny. I almost never think in terms of how do you follow right, up? Right, right. That's a reporter question. <laughs> you know, how do you? Right. It did so well. What are you going to do? Your, your biggest problem is your success. Right. No, for me, I, I just, you know, I never want to stop making things. That's, that's why we're here. But I started reading that Hamilton book, My First Vacation from Heights. It was my first week off. It was after we'd won at the Tonys. So just to give everybody, if they're keeping following the timeline, July yeah. 2008. You go on this vacation, right? Yeah. And before you do, you, you got to get some reading material. Yeah, I was living in a no man's land of a neighborhood at the time. I was living sort of between the Upper West Side and Hell's Kitchen. I call it Upper West Hell. <laughs> and so I was at the borders, the now extinct borders in Columbus Circle. May rest in peace. RIP borders. Yes. <laughs> uh, and I was looking for just, you know, this is pre-Kindle. So right. I was just looking for like one good book to read. Right. And I wanted a big book so I wouldn't have to pack a lot of books. Right. So I saw Ron Chernow's biography of Hamilton. I'd written a paper on Hamilton in high school. I I knew he died in a duel. I knew his son died in a duel. And I thought that was super interesting. Like, how do you rush in to make the same mistake your son made? And I saw it had great reviews on the back and just sort of grabbed it at random out of the biography section. And pretty early into it, I realized this was a very compelling story. And B, this was a hip hop story in that Hamilton is someone who gets everywhere, good or bad, by virtue of his writing. Mm -hmm. And that's what my favorite MCs do. They, they, they write about their circumstances so well. They're so specific that they're universal and they're so well written that they transcend their circumstances. And then they have a whole new bunch of stuff to deal with. And to me, Hamilton's story was a proto version of that story. And it was also an immigrant story. It's the one founder who wasn't born to gentry or, or wealth. You know, this is not like an Enlightenment era guy who's like, well, yeah, you know, this was like a guy who was scrapping hard for everything. I was very inspired by it. And, and even in that first time reading through it, which is where you're sitting on which like a is beach in somewhere? like Playa del Carmen in Mexico at like an all-inclusive resort where the drinks have umbrellas oh and sitting in a hammock over a pool and I'm thinking but but even then I'm thinking who's the best rapper to play George Washington <laughs> like I was already how many pages into this are you starting to think like 
in those terms. End of the second chapter. When, when he writes about the essay, when he writes the essay that gets him off the island. And then, you know, you get to the third chapter and he's getting involved in the revolution and he's writing under a pseudonym. I was like, oh, he has a rapper name. You know, like, <laughs> it was like, it was like the good idea that kept right. proving me right over the course of the book in lots of interesting different ways, yeah. the way his life paralleled the life of an MC. I mean, I think people, obviously now it, it sounds like, of course, this is, this makes sense. But I, I just think if, if, if listeners or anyone, including me, when you stop and when you think about that, if you had just gone up to somebody, maybe you said this to your wife at the time, they must have looked at you like you were crazy. Well, my wife is the greatest because she never looks at never me. Looks well, at she you. actually, she always looks at me as like crazy, <laughs> but she never shuts anything down. Right. She was sort of like, huh. Interesting. Cool. And the reason for rap, though, as opposed to some other form of music is is that is is I think Hamilton needs all the words he can get his yeah. hands on, and also it's it's that energy of of rebellion. It's that energy of making something out of nothing, that is so embedded in the you know in the roots of hip hop, and is is what Hamilton did with his life. Is it correct that the original idea here, before you're thinking in terms of a full fledged theatrical production, is let's do like a, essentially. An album like others that you had known. Yeah. I thought I was going to get my Andrew Lloyd Webber on. Yeah, I right. thought I was going to do like the Jesus Christ Superstar, Evita, Evita like concept album. Right, right. Um, and that was and and it was great. It was I think a part of it was a measure of self protection. Like I'm not writing my next show. I'm writing this song cycle <laughs> of of dope hip hop songs about Hamilton. <laughs> and then someone will have to worry about staging it later. And I think by doing that, I also gave myself permission to go all the way in in terms of the density of the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My favorite hip-hop albums, you're hearing new stuff every time you hear them because yeah. the illusions and the double entendres and the, the internal assonance, they're, they're packed so tight. I, you know, I feel that way about Reasonable Doubt. I feel that way about Ready to Die. I feel that way about Big Puns, First Album, Capital Punishment. And so I wasn't thinking the theater goer has to get it all the first time. Right. And I think by doing that, I, I, I inadvertently made a richer experience for the theater goer because they are going to get something new every time they go see the show because I meant for it to stand up to repeated listens. And this this album was going to be known as, or was known at the time as the Hamilton Mixtape? Hamilton Mixtape, that's right. And so now... While you're still doing In the Heights, 2009, you're invited to come perform for President Obama at an evening of poetry, music, and the spoken word at the White House. They were seeking something from In the Heights, right? Yeah, it was sort of, you can do something from In the Heights or if there's anything about the American experience. And I had 16 bars (laughs) on Hamilton. I'd really just written Burr's two verses of the opening, of what became the opening number of the show. And then we kind of, I figured out a chorus around it, went to Alex Lackamore, my music director, because I was writing to a beat I'd created. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't want to rap over a beat, like a pre-programmed beat at the White House. I wanted to right. do something acoustic. And you were doing Burr at the time. Well, I was doing what, who I thought Whoever, was going right, to be the right, narrator. Right, right. I didn't, I had, we hadn't stumbled upon the idea of multiple narrators yet. So it was, gotcha. it was, it was, you know, a straight, JCS lift. It's yeah. here's Judas introducing Jesus, right. right? So it was originally just Burr telling the story. So video of that goes viral. What happened as a result of people suddenly seeing this this crazy thing? Well, it's actually it's interesting. It actually happened in stages because I performed in May, but the video didn't come out until October. So people who saw it the first time were watching a live stream, which is not the footage they put out later. And the live stream, the sound was like not great. (laughs) It's true. You know, you you watch it a little and people are like, oh, good, I guess. Like it just it it sounded a little blown out. And it was like sort of your typical C-SPAN footage of an evening at the White House. But the, the great good luck I had was that HBO filmed the evening. They had some poets there who were performing that were part of a TV show they were producing. So when the White House put out the final footage in October, I mean, it looks like a, it looks like yeah, a movie. It's, it's really beautiful. And, and, and that experience, I mean, a video is a microcosm of the entire Hamilton experience, right? I say, I'm doing this thing about Hamilton. Everyone laughs. Yes, exactly. And then by the end, they're all bobbing their heads oh, because yeah. the story is that compelling. Yeah. And the story does lend itself to this form of music very well. And so it makes its own case better than I could make it. I couldn't sell this pitch in yeah, an elevator right, right. to an exec. <laughs> but if I could wrap the 16 bars, I'd be okay. So meanwhile, over the ensuing few years, it's continuing to evolve. And, and by the time it's 2012, you, you did a whole bunch of songs at 
Lincoln Center's American Songbook series. They were 11 songs that were Hamilton. Again, Tommy Kale to the rescue, because it took me a year to write that opening number. It took me a year to write my shot. And then Tommy Kale said, you need to work faster than a song a year. (laughs) So he said, why don't we set a deadline? Let's set a deadline. Let's set up a concert for our friends, super low pressure. At the same time, I'd gotten an offer from the American Songbook series to have an evening. And the evening they offered me was January 11th, Hamilton's birthday. So we got that offer about six months in advance. And so Tommy was like, all right, here's a deadline. Like, you've got a night. So I just began writing the songs I'd been meaning to write. And a lot of the songs that were in that made the final cut in sort of their their first forms. So Right Hand Man was in that. My Shot was in that. Say No to This was Mm -hmm. in that. Angelica Schuyler didn't exist yet. But... We had the cabinet battles, the first two cabinet battles. James Monroe Iglehart was playing uh, Jefferson in those, and right. now he's going back to play it in April. That's so great. Yeah, and, then, and I hadn't written the duel yet, so we closed with Alexander Hamilton. We closed with the number I'd done at the White House. And Tommy has said of that night, where I guess there were quite a few notable people in the audience, yes. he said, quote, I saw John Kander's face light up during the rap battles between Hamilton and Jefferson, and I knew then that we had something, close quote. And John Kander, actually, I saw you guys do a conversation after the after a performance of The Visit. Yeah. And I, I, I had not known that you had this very, I guess, as after that night, you you guys kind of, maybe it was even before because of In the Heights, but you, you had a pretty close relationship. And were, did I remember that you were actually researching Hamilton at his home or something? Yeah. So John is like my best composer friend. He came to see In the Heights off-Broadway. The, the weird thing about getting to do, if you're lucky enough to do theater in New York, is you meet your heroes quick because it's not, it's not like Hollywood. It's no. not diffuse. We all work within the same 15 yeah. blocks. So he and I met in 2007 and started having lunch regularly. So he's one of the first people I told about Hamilton. You know, I was working on it at his house up in the country, and he was just one of the earliest sort of cheerleaders of the thing. So, yeah, he was right in the front row. And that's kind of amazing because not that you would think he wouldn't appreciate great music because, of course, he would, but just maybe that was also an early giveaway that despite sort of the assumptions about what types of music each generation of people would respond to, if you had him, why couldn't you have everybody, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I yeah, I don't even think that way. I mean, I think that the best thing about John and why he's so wonderful is that he's just interested in stuff that makes him want to write. And he said that to me. He said, I talk to you and I want to go home and write, not write rap music, not write, you know, like he's just like that's he loves being inspired. And I feel inspired every time I talk to him. You know, the song The Room Where It Happens is my love letter to John. That click boom is my that jazz. (laughs) It's uh, it's a love letter to, to that incredible collaboration. But yeah, I think that storytelling is storytelling is storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I remember him being in the front row for those. And we actually, the opening number of that songbook concert was a five-song New York mashup where we mashed up Jay-Z, Alicia Keys' Empire State of Mind <laughs> with New York, New York, with a little Billy Joel, New York State of Mind, with a little Another Hundred People. I saw that. I wondered what was going on there because I thought I heard Jay-Z and then it suddenly, uh, yeah. Yeah, oh, I was that's... sort of, you know, I, I was sort of staking my claim as like every genre's right. fair game. <laughs> Musical theater is a bastard right. art form. Right. We take whatever tells the story yeah. best and that's the fun of it. So as, as you referenced a little while ago, Hamilton, if it didn't introduce, it certainly popularized the idea of, of colorblind casting. How early on did that element of the equation enter your mind and and again in hindsight it seems so obvious and perfect for this story but you know to to illustrate who we were with artists who reflect who we are but was that always going to be part of it well yeah like like i told you i was never picturing the little literal founders even when i was reading the book for the first time I know what they look like. (laughs) There's a whole mountain of them in Pierre, South Dakota. (laughs) They're on our currency. They're super well represented. And so, again, I I knew I was going to be writing hip-hop and R&B music, that that was the form Hamilton's story was going to take. So we were going to find the best artists and actors to convey that music. And so that's that's how we landed where we landed. And Tommy elevated that to a principle in his casting. In other words, is colorblind casting essential to Hamilton in future incarnations on Broadway and in its touring companies, or could there ever be if the best person, not that, not that, you know, white performers are struggling to find opportunities, but if they're, you know, I guess what I'm saying is, is that built into the formula? If you're going to be in Hamilton, it's going to be 
a person of color. Well, I think there's a there, there's been a misconception that's come with our show, which is we've always had white performers in our right. like that's Jonathan that was Groff. never a thing. Not only Jonathan Groff, but Thane Jasperson, Carly Bettyall. That's always been a part of the they're they're part of the makeup too. It's never been about excluding anyone. It's right. about including no. everyone. Of course, of course. And so that's always been the ethos is let's include everyone. And I <laughs> I don't know how that's gotten twisted to we're excluding. No, white I, people. I certainly wasn't no, implying I, I, that. No, I know you weren't, yeah. but but there are people online yeah. who think that we think that way and 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 it, it's never been true right. it's just never been true i mean i think uh, our goal is always to have the show reflect the diversity uh, of the country as mm-hmm. it exists today so when it finally was ready for for prime time you guys go first to the public for a period of i guess january 2015 through May. Yeah, or, like May. And then by July 2015, you're at the Richard Rogers, which, by the way, was that a specific desire of yours to go back there, having done, wasn't In the Heights there as well? Yes, In the Heights was there. And it's funny, you know, we're not we're not superstitious. We're not trying to have good luck charms. Yeah. But at the same time, Tom, Tommy said, like, well, you know, the Rogers is, like, actually even better for this show yeah. than, than, than Heights was in terms of the sight lines and in terms of what we're doing, because it's, the thing about the Rogers, it's a really steep rake, and we've got these two spinning turntables in the middle of our set, so it's it's the best way to see the show in terms of Broadway, the Broadway houses. So it was it was also wonderful to to be in a place where we were instantly comfortable. You know, I I lived yeah, I lived at the Rogers. I knew that staff already. It was like going back home. So it had been this this phenomenon at the public, and now again, you were there back at the Rogers in July for previews. Opens in August. I had the great privilege of seeing it in September 2015, which is, I, I took my mom, it's something we'll always treasure that memory. And awesome. I guess I just wonder, how early on did you realize this was becoming a phenomenon? Like, In the Heights had been successful, but right. this is a I thought In the Heights was the pinnacle. I mean, yeah. you can't ask for more than what In the Heights did. Like, we won Best Musical, we made our money back, we had, like, a national tour, mm-hmm. and, and we had, a, like, a really decent run mm-hmm. who could ask for more than that <laughs> in for a broadway show in a, in a climate where one in five shows recoups so there was there's no preparing for for what happened i will never forget when we announced our i think it was our second extension at the public we're still in tech we hadn't wow. really opened yet but we just kept selling out all the tickets what do you attribute that to if people hadn't even seen it yet what was i the- think the video helped a lot i think i think we were always on the radar of teachers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, it goes back to teaching. Because if you go look at the YouTube comments, they're all, my teacher showed us this in class, in APUSH, APUS history. And so we were on that radar for a yeah. lot of people because that video went very far. Yes. But, but I'll never forget being in tech and Oscar Eustace walking in with this crazy look on his face being like, you broke our phones. <laughs> the phones at the public are down. We've had the website crash before. We've never had anyone break the phones. <laughs> and that's when I knew we were in like uncharted waters. Because right. this is also, this is home of chorus line. This is home of hair. Like they know from hit shows. Oh, sure. So that was when I knew we were headed somewhere and uncharted. And then when did it actually start to, when did the success actually start to impact the way that you were able to go about your life? Like for instance, I know at a certain point, the stage door became a little hazardous. Yeah, well we realized pretty early that, you have to tack on 45 minutes at the end of your show. You know, you've just been singing and dancing and rapping for two hours and 45 minutes, and someone you admire greatly is going to be in the audience, and they're going to be backstage. <laughs> so factor that in. And then, you know, there's people waiting outside. And, and it really happened after the cast album came out, because what we started getting at the stage door were not people who'd seen the show. That I was used to. Like, oh, you saw the show, and now you want an autograph right, at the end of the show. Right. It just became a scene to be there. Right. And so that became like an hour, hour and a half thing. And it's, it's chilled out a bit, but it's this mixed bag because you want to make everyone happy, and you want to sign the thing, but you also don't want to create an unsafe situation outside with this like barrier. You know, it does make me nostalgic for, at the public, you're all just in the lobby. <laughs> There's no barrier between anyone. Right, right. You come out. The people who want to wait, wait. You assign them. You you take a picture, right. and everyone is less. Ah! Right, it's right. less Beatlemania. It's <laughs> less of that because there's no barrier. There's no. This might be my only chance right, feeling. Right. It's just we're all in the lobby. <laughs> so how also then as you're becoming personally the, the as the face and the creator of this whole phenomenon, 
the press, certainly everybody in the world wanted a, a piece of you, of your time and right. all of that. How do you keep that from distracting you from what you're still trying to do? You're in the middle of, of you, you're expected now, either the expectations that you faced every night couldn't be higher, and yet you also have all these other demands that you didn't have at the beginning. Yeah, I think three things kept me sane. My wife, my son, and Moana. <laughs> you know, my, my wife is not in this business, so when I get home, it's not, it's not about look at the cool thing I did. It's <laughs> it's just like what's going on in our real lives right. in over here in real life. Right. I had a newborn. My son was born three weeks before rehearsal started off Broadway at the Public. Wow. So the sleeplessness of those first weeks coincided nicely with my sleeplessness doing rewrites. Man. And then you know you're you're thinking about checkups and you're thinking about eating solids and you're <laughs> thinking about all his first steps were the primary focus of my life, not the phenomenon that was happening. It was like, is that a tooth? (laughs) (laughs) That that was the focus of my life. And then the third thing was Moana because, you know, I'd gotten the job uh, about seven and a half months before anything had started at the public. And so I'm, I have to say no to things because I need days free to write. I was going to say, I don't know. I mean, first of all, most people don't realize that you were already on that before any of the Hamilton madness. And then, the idea that you had to do that work while dealing with Hamilton and yeah. now Mary Poppins and all the other things that, I mean, it just seems. But it ended up being a saving grace because it was, your magazine would call, Variety would right. call, and I'd go, I can't. I need Tuesdays and Thursdays right. free. So every Tuesday and Thursday at 5 p.m., I'd have a a Skype call with the creative team over in Burbank. Mm-hmm. And I needed to turn in stuff and yeah. we had to discuss it. And the meeting was very awkward if I didn't write anything. Right. <laughs> so it was great because it forced me to write. It forced me to clear my brain. Yeah. And and it was a wonderful place to be. It's a wonderful to write songs for Moana and Maui out on the open water. Right. It could not have been a happier place to go when I wasn't in the <laughs> midst of the tsunami that was right. the wonderful tsunami yes. that was Hamilton. All right. Before we, we – I do want to obviously talk a lot about Moana. But yeah. first – when you're doing, you would be in how many of the performances each week? I did week? seven a week. Seven a week, right. Because yeah, I, I, I remember being nervous. I wanted to make sure right. I was there when you were there. But even when a show is as phenomenally successful as yours was and you're getting such a great response, with any show, doesn't it somewhat get in any way monotonous to do that many performances a week? No, not even close. And, and I mean, every time I watch the show, I, I'm a little jealous of whoever's playing Hamilton <laughs> at the time, no matter how fantastic they are. Right. We have some amazing Hamiltons, but I'm always a little jealous because I don't think I'm done with that role by any stretch. You know, it's, one, it's just a meal of a role. In what other, you know, maybe you have a part where you get to fall in love. Maybe you have a part where you get to fight in a gun duel. <laughs> maybe you get a part where you get to have an affair. Right. Maybe you get a part where you lose a loved one and get to explore all that. Hamilton, you do all of that. <laughs> you do everything you do in life right. in two hours and 45 minutes. It's you, it's you, live, the f- you live your fullest life. So that never gets old. Mm-hmm. And then the other component of it was we had these audiences that we knew it, they made miracles happen to be in that audience. Yes. Yes. Whether they paid too much money to someone, to a secondary website, yeah. or they just got they're super early or they were online all day we knew they'd moved mountains to be mm-hmm. there too and so you can never give them any less than your best and if i ever felt my attention flag for a second all i ever had to do was look in the front row and see some little kid or yeah. see someone next to their mother and you'd be right back in it right. because you know we're i made miracles happen to finish the fucking show and they made miracles happen to be there so you know you don't deserve anything less than our best no that's great and and when you're you know speaking about the the economic implications of of Hamilton. We did a story, which you may remember, about just looking at your neighboring restaurants and bars near the Rogers and everything. That was so (laughs) surreal. Isn't that crazy that you guys literally had a a title effect that lifted the desirability to go to all these other places and their revenue and all of that. And additionally, Hamilton books and memorabilia and everything up to I recently went to the New York Public Library I'd never been and I go in there and there's a whole Hamilton letters and papers and everything because of you so another related thing though was that when the show is doing this well one thing that doesn't normally happen on Broadway is this idea of profit sharing mm-hmm. and you guys had a had a conversation about that and and I just wonder you know in the midst of dealing with all of the other things you have to be dealing with was that a 
a tough conversation or it ended up resolving itself but how did that go yeah it was it was really tough and 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 I'm and I think everyone's really happy with where we landed yeah. and that's fantastic it mm-hmm. was it, it was tough because I think it was tougher than it needed to be because I think what happened was the the cast really took it upon themselves initially and so some of those feelings got brought into the building and you could not have someone more in the middle of things than me. Yeah. I'm I'm a, your fellow actor. I'm also the writer. I've also worked with this producer for many years. I know he has the best of intentions yeah. for this cast. I know the cast has the best of intentions for the show. And yet there's this divide we all have to sort of figure out together. Mm-hmm. So it was tricky for me. I had to I, I had to kind of both stay out of it when it was going well and stay out of it when it was going poorly. <laughs> and that was painful. Yeah. That was painful. How long a period was that where it was like kind of in discussion? A, a, a long time. I mean, it was most of our first year. And so... None of you guys made much money at the public, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no. And and and, know, and knowing that and like doing yeah. it happily, like right, hoping hoping for bigger things and and, and hoping to, to move pretty quickly and, right. and being assured that we would move pretty quickly right. uh, thanks to the success of the show. But all that being said, I think... I think we're tighter for it, and I think everyone's everyone's sort of closer for yeah. it. One last Hamilton question is just what has, I guess, moved you the most about the, the success? There's, just to list a few facts, highest debut and cast album in 50 years, Grammy, Pulitzer, record 16 Tony nominations, and then I lost track of how many wins. I was there, and it was, it was dizzying. And, I mean, I personally know of everyone from toddlers to – elderly white people who know every word of your show and I just don't think that would ever be possible forget about the the rap element of any of any other show that I know of so what for you though took you the most aback about about all of this I mean it's it's hard to point to anything you know I I always think about this one moment I had within the heights we were we were backstage we were about to do one of our first shows and one of the actresses in the ensemble gave this really like heartbreaking, beautiful speech about how she was in this business and inspired to be here because of Priscilla Lopez, who was also standing in that circle. Priscilla originated the role of Morales and basically created that role. It's based on her life. And I remember Priscilla turned to me and and she said, this thing you're making, you have no idea the ripples that are going to come back to you and when they're going to come back to you. And you've thrown a rock in the pond. And that was within the heights. And and with Hamilton, it's like every day brings some new crazy thing from seeing, from yesterday, seeing our original Skylar sisters sing America the Beautiful yeah. at the Super Bowl to changing the channel and seeing the puppy bowl. And there's a puppy named Alexander Hamilpup, <laughs> you know, <That's laughs> like every day there's a different thing to seeing People with placards saying immigrants who get the job done at the Women's March to I was in Chicago doing a book signing at Barnes and Noble and the cop had this really awesome Latina lady cop who was like my bodyguard (laughs) for the day. And she was she was really cool. And and then uh, at the end of the day, she goes, do you mind if I show you something? And she pulls up her arm and she's got my shot tattooed like on her forearm. She goes, would you sign it? So I signed it and then she tattooed my signature over like they sent me a picture later of that. I was just like, this is uh, I mean, again, I I, I always and anytime something like that happens, I just picture Priscilla Lopez like looking at me backstage going, you have no idea the ripples that are going to come back to you now going back to moana would you have agreed i know you were obsessed with with disney animation for most of your life would you have agreed to do the music for any disney animated movie or was there something specific about moana that you responded to i think that a couple of things one i yeah i was i was very eager to to work with disney but i was unbelievably excited after i met with ron and john and osnat the the producer one of the first things they sort of told me about was the system of navigation, which I, I, you know, I didn't know anything about the Pacific Islands and their incredible culture mm-hmm. when I started this journey. But this notion of, of navigating without compasses, of being the greatest navigators in the world, and a metaphor being as literally true as you have to keep your island you came from in your mind so that you can get to where you're going next. <laughs> I mean, that's literally what you have to yeah. do. You have to... Memorize the stars in the sky, under, be able to read the patterns of the waves and the clouds and the wind, and always keep where you came from in your mind. I mean, that's 
That's a that's a metaf- as good a metaphor yeah. for life as you're ever gonna yeah, get, yeah, yeah. and and that knocked me out. And then when I realized this was really gonna be special, was one of the first pieces of animation was Chris Williams did a a storyboard for something we called in house the water test, mm-hmm. but it's in the movie in the form of Baby Moana meeting the ocean yes. for the first time, and. When I saw that, I knew we were off to the races because, first of all, Opatia's incredible music with Tabaka is over it, and it's it was already beautiful, and, so, and it was that from the beginning, and it was always that. And two, I think the best movies, the best movie moments remind us of something that we once knew but forgot. And I think when you're little, you have a personal relationship with the ocean. I remember being in Puerto Rico and punching back waves. <laughs> and I remember making castles and making moats and, you know, the, the waves trying to capture my castle. And that, I had forgotten about that as an adult. I'd forgotten that I once used to anthropomorphize the yeah. waves. Yeah. And that water test reminded me of it. It reminded me of something from my childhood that had washed away with time. And that's when I knew we, we had something really special. You're nominated for How Far I'll Go, but you're credited with seven songs on this, writing seven songs. And is it true that some of Hamilton's cast members did early versions of these? Perform- sang- yeah, I had the good fortune of, I mean, I was writing pretty much like in my dressing room. So I had the good fortune of having these incredible singers just around. So, you know, there's a song that got cut from the movie called Warrior Face, and it's Pippa and Chris Jackson as Moana and Maui, respectively. Chris is actually in the movie. He's the singing voice of Moana's dad because we just fell in love with that version. So that's how it stayed. But yeah, Pippa was Pippa was my Moana for most of the demos. And Marcy Harriel, who's another actress who was in, in the Heights with me for many years, sang some of my early demos as well. Very last thing is just call rapid fire. Will Hamilton ever be a movie? Yes, who knows when. In the Heights. That's actually in the works of being a movie, right? Yes, I actually just finished reading Kiara's screenplay on the way here. It's really wonderful. That's awesome. Mary Poppins, what you're doing is a remake, a sequel? What is it? It's a sequel. And you're excited about it. And I'm very excited about it, and it's it's really thrilling. It's all new music, but it's such a love letter to the original film that I think fans of that film are going to be really happy. You're Oscar-nominated that hypothetically and and possibly could make you the youngest EGOT winner in history. What do you make of that? I feel like I already went on the EGOT journey vicariously through Bobby Lopez, who's a good (laughs) buddy. So I'm just, I'm excited to go to the party. What would Hamilton make of the current immigration crisis? I don't know. You know, Hamilton, for all of his sort of rise up inness, you know, really was very ashamed of his upbringings. So I, I don't know if he'd be, he'd probably be on the other side of things. But I know that he, he sometimes felt at odds with the direction the country was heading in terms of feeling at home in this country he helped create. And lastly, what is left on your bucket list? It seems like you've done everything that a lot of people would ever dream of who are in your profession. What haven't you done that you're still dreaming about doing? Let me give you the most cliche answer in the yeah. history of Hollywood. What I really want to do is direct. <laughs> is direct? Really? Is it true? Yeah, I'd love to direct a movie someday. And I have a three ideas that I'm saving for, for myself, but I'm waiting for one of them to raise its hand. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. This is a treat. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.